We're going to look at their lives a little bit. And as I was thinking about this sermon and looking at these different women's lives, I was thinking, who are the most influential women in the last couple hundred years? Now, if you look on Google, there's some women that are around more recently that I don't know if I would put them in that category. I was reading about one woman, though, who really stood out to me. Her name was Marie Curie. She was a Polish physicist, and she worked on radioactivity. She was the first woman to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. She actually received it twice, once with her husband before his death, once after his death. He died in a car accident. She's the first person to ever receive the Nobel Peace Prize in two different categories. She's responsible for the technology that enables us to have x-rays so that you can see what's going on inside of your body with your bones. Not only did she use her accomplishments in the medical field, she was around when World War I was taking place, so she used her accomplishments in the battlefield as well to help doctors who were helping soldiers during that time. She eventually became the director of the Red Cross Radiology Service. She developed these mobile stations to be able to help people on the battlefield get the care that they needed, especially when it came to amputations and things like that. She's quoted as saying, one never notices what has been done, one can only see what remains to be done. You can read more about her life if you want to. She's just one of the many women over the past couple hundred years who have really changed history. You know, as we think about women in the Bible and just how Christianity perceives women, sometimes the church gets a bad rap. Sometimes the outside world looks at the church and says that the church doesn't care about women or treat women like it should. They neglect women some people even say the church encourages abuse of women, and there's more of that rhetoric happening right now. But if you look at Scripture, women have honestly been treated better than the rest of society throughout the history of the Bible. Read the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament and look at some of the women in the Old Testament, they are treated and emphasized more than the rest of the ancient world. The ancient world did not treat women very well. But the Old Testament saints always treated them better. If you think about the ministry of Jesus, Jesus valued women. He emphasized women. He taught women. He healed different women in his ministry. There's many examples of him even talking to women who would not be looked as women he should be hanging out with. In the letters of the New Testament, women are never put down, but they instead show us what it means to be godly and one of the most clear examples of the Bible's unique emphasis on women is in Jesus' family tree. I mentioned this last week. It's unusual, especially for the Bible during this time period when the book of Matthew is written, to include the name of women in this genealogy. You could just go through and say that Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and so on and so on and just leave the women out. But there's five women who are mentioned here, and I think it's for a purpose. Each one of them has an interesting life story. And as we look at these women, they're not exactly the women that I would put in Jesus' family tree. They have some interesting backgrounds. They're not ordinary, and they're not even the best examples of godliness. A couple of them had some sexual immorality in their past, which we'll talk about. Tamar slept with her father-in-law, Rahab was a prostitute, Bathsheba committed adultery with David, and three of the five of them are Gentiles. Tamar was probably a Gentile in Canaan, 
Rahab, we know, was from Jericho. She was a Gentile. And Ruth was a Moabite. Now, we don't know about Bathsheba. She could have been a Gentile as well. She was married to Uriah the Hittite. But that means they're not part of the Jewish community. And you think about if I'm Matthew and I'm writing this book, who am I going to include in Jesus' family tree? What about Sarah? Sarah was the wife of Abraham. She has a lot more written about her in Scripture than some of these people. Why would they not include Sarah or Rebecca, who was Isaac's wife, or Rachel or Leah, who were Jacob's wives? But yet these five women are mentioned for a reason. And I believe it's because we can learn lessons from these women. These women in Scripture can teach us something. Now, they may not teach us necessarily how to be godly. Some of their lives I wouldn't recommend emulating in our life. But they do teach us something about God and the Christmas story. And I think they teach us something about the God we worship. And as we look at Matthew 1, what we're trying to see is that we should worship Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah and King. And you know, around this time of year, we sing Christmas carols. There's all these songs that we wait until December. Well, I guess if you do what you're supposed to, you wait until after Thanksgiving to sing these songs. Sometimes we get a little bit ahead of ourselves and we start singing them in November, some of us October, some crazy people in September and even the rest of the year. But around this time of year, around the fall, around Christmas, we sing Christmas carols. Why? Because there is a lot of songs talking about the birth of Jesus. And it shows us something about the Christmas story. It is not just something to be studied. It's not just something to be talked about. It is something to be sung about. The Christmas story gives us a reason to sing and a reason to worship. And I think we see that in these examples of the women of Jesus' family tree. We can learn lessons from them, not about how to live, but about the God we worship. So let's go ahead and start by looking at two different women who teach us one lesson. We're going to look at a lesson from Tamar and Rahab. We're going to look at, first of all, the life of Tamar. Tamar is mentioned in Genesis 38. All the way back to Genesis 38, we mentioned her father-in-law last week. He's also part of Jesus' family tree. If you look at Genesis 38, it's kind of a weird inclusion in the Bible. In fact, I've got some friends who have been preaching through Genesis. You get to Genesis 37, it's all about Joseph. And Joseph has this great story, this great story arc in the Bible about suffering and trials and how God protects him and works with him and ends up making him the leader in Egypt. And it's, it's got movies made about it because it's such a wonderful picture of God's providence. But in between Genesis 37, which begins the story of Joseph, and Genesis 39, which continues the story of Joseph, we have Genesis 38. And we read this chapter and we think, what is going on? Why are we reading this chapter about Judah's sons who died and how he ends up sleeping with his daughter-in-law? Like, Why is this here? Well, it's here because it tells us about the line of Christ. So let's look at Tamar just for a moment. First of all, her background. What, what makes up Tamar's background? She's the first woman that we meet in Jesus' genealogy. It says in the verse that uh, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. She was the daughter-in-law of Judah. She was married to Ur. Now, I mentioned earlier, I think she was probably a Canaanite woman. 
I don't know that to be 100% sure. It's the guess of many scholars and commentators. They were in the land of Canaan. They would have probably taken wives from around that area. And later on, she does some things that kind of make us think she could be Canaanite. And that just means she's not an Israelite. She's not from the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She's married to a guy named Ur. And it says that Ur did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So he died. And that's, that's all we hear about him is that he didn't do what was right. We don't know why. We don't know what he did. He just dies. And in that time, if your husband died, it was the husband's family responsibility to make sure that you were taken care of, usually by that widow marrying the brother of the husband. So she would marry her brother-in-law. So she gets married to this guy named Onan, but he does not want to produce children with her. And that's all described here in Genesis 38. So he dies as well. Now Judah has a third son, but he decides, you know what? She's married two of my sons. They've died. I don't think I'm going to give her my third son to marry as well. So he just leaves her as this widow. That is the end of that part of the story. There's a little bit of time that goes on. Judah ends up going to the town that Tamar is in. She dresses like a prostitute. She, he ends up not recognizing who she is. He sleeps with her. She reveals who she is, and he ends up getting her pregnant with two sons. Now, that's messy. That's not stuff we like to hear about in church, but that is the truth about what happens in this story. And again, you read this chapter and you think, why is this here? Why are they? It almost seems like you're talking to a family member and they start telling an honorary story, and you're thinking, why are they telling me this right now? But this chapter is here because it shows us the line of Christ. Tamar's background is a broken background. Her husband's died. She's not really from the Jewish family. And in that time when your husband died, it usually meant that you were at risk for um, being killed, for starvation, for not having that security with you, not just physically, financially as well. So her problem is the fact that she's not married now. Judah's not taking care of her. And she doesn't exactly go about fixing the situation in a way that we would condone. And the point of my sermon today is not to say, hey, you should be like Tamar. You should do everything that she does. In fact, she's probably not a person that I would tell you to emulate. But we do see here the grace of God in the life of Tamar. She gives birth to two sons, Perez and Zerah. They end up being part of the line of Christ. And it shows us something. That despite Tamar's broken background, God still gives her grace. God still, through his grace, not only protects her, but also produces men who would be in the line of Christ. Her story is similar, not in every way, but she has a similar background, at least, to the story of Rahab. So we've seen Tamar. We next want to look at Rahab, and her story is told in the book of Joshua. In the book of Joshua, Joshua is getting ready to enter into the land of Canaan. It's the land that God had promised them to be in. The Israelites were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And in the book of Joshua, God says, go into the land. I've given it to you. You're going to take this land. And in Joshua 2, he, spent, he sends two spies to look at the land of Canaan and specifically the city of Jericho. These two spies find a prostitute named Rahab 
and she ends up hiding them on her roof. The king of Jericho sends people to ask her, hey, do you have the spies in your house? Do you have these men who are from the Israelites? She lies and said, yes, they came here. They ended up leaving, going somewhere else. And it's kind of interesting. Why does she lie to the king of Jericho? Well, it's because she believed in the power of God. If you look at Joshua chapter 2, in verse 9, she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Shehan and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is in the heavens above the earth and beneath. Why does Rahab protect these two men? It's because she believes in the power of God. She's not a Jewish woman. She's not grown up hearing Bible stories. She's not gone to Sunday school. She saw what God did and she said, I don't know who that God is, but that's the God that I want to worship. And so, yes, there are things in Rahab's background that we don't really like. She was a prostitute. We don't know. We hope she didn't continue that after she joined the Jewish nation. But despite her background, she believed in the God of the Bible. And it's kind of interesting. You hear these stories and people say, what about people who live in some foreign country who have never heard the gospel before? Are they still responsible? Are they still accountable and I think this at least shows us that even Rahab, who we think was unsaved even at this point, could see the works of God and say, I don't know who that guy is, but I'm going to follow him. She believed in the God of the Bible. So she spares these two men. She hides them. And this brings up another difficult question. Is it ever okay to lie? And this passage is often brought up here. Is it ever okay to lie when you've got two men and if you tell the soldiers, yes, you know, they knock on your door. Are you hiding to Israelites? If you say, yeah, they're upstairs, they're probably going to die. But God, this story doesn't really tell us whether or not it's right or wrong. The commentator doesn't mention anything about that. But God does use her work to protect these men. And eventually the city of Jericho is destroyed. So despite maybe some of her actions, God still works maybe what she meant for evil for good. Now, the problem with Rahab, and maybe the reason we wouldn't expect to find her in the line of Christ, is her past. She's not just a Canaanite. She's a harlot. She's a prostitute. She's obviously okay with lying in this situation. But again, we see the grace of God. God giving people what they do not deserve, working despite their background to protect her, to keep the line of Christ going. And what we find in the book of Matthew is that Rahab is part of the line of Christ. Even though she's a Gentile, even though she was a prostitute, she ends up being part of Jesus' family tree. And I think these two women teach us a lesson. It's that God gives grace to the broken. God gives grace to the broken. And the Christmas story is a story about the grace of God. What is grace? 
We've talked about it as we've studied the book of Ephesians. It is God giving us what we don't deserve. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. It is God working in our lives when we don't maybe deserve him to be. And we not only see that these women need the grace of God, but we need the grace of God as well. We read in Ephesians 2 a couple weeks ago, You were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the minds, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The Christmas story is a story about grace. There's no one in this room who deserved to be saved. I like all of you. I love all of you. I think all of you are great people. None of you deserve to be saved apart from the grace of God. The grace of God is that God became a baby. God became a man. And we talk about Jesus becoming a baby during this time, but it's not just that he became a baby that's important. It's that he took on human flesh. He did what we would not expect him to do. And and the Jews didn't expect this to happen. They thought, hey, when the king comes, he's going to come in this great and triumphant victory over the earth. He's going to be riding a white horse. He's going to conquer these nations. It's very much like the picture we see in Revelation. But God works through Christ to give us grace. This is why Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourself, it is a gift from God. Did Rahab and Tamar deserve to be part of the line of Christ? Well, no. But then again, do we deserve to be children of God? No, we don't. Before Christ, we were excluded from eternal life, but because of God's grace, he calls us his sons. And by the way, this grace doesn't just save us, it changes the way we live. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. How many of you are thankful that when God saved you, he didn't leave you in the same way, but he started working in your life, he started changing you, you changed the way you talked, you changed the way you acted, you changed the things you wanted to do, you started becoming more like Christ. And why is that? It is God's grace. God's grace loves to work in broken people. And I think this is a story we can learn from Tamar and Rahab, two women we wouldn't expect to find in the family tree of Jesus. We see another woman in the book of Matthew. Her name is Ruth. And we're going to learn a lesson from Ruth about the providence of God. Ruth, the story of Ruth takes place in the time of the Judges. Judges is after Joshua. Judges is an interesting book. Some of the Thursday Bible study people have been wanting to look at Judges. It's a little bit of an animated book, I guess is a way you could say it. There's a lot of interesting things going on during that time. And Ruth takes place during this time. There was no king in Israel, so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And you say, I wonder what would happen if everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. Well, Judges is what happens. And it's a crazy time period to study and to live in. And the book of Ruth introduces us to a Jewish family. The husband's name is Elimelech. The wife's name is Naomi. 
And they have two sons, Malcon and Chilion. And Naomi's husband dies. Her two sons die. And she's left just with her two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpha. Now, as I said earlier about Tamar, if your husband died during this time, this was your source of protection, your source of security. It was devastating to you. It was devastating physically because you didn't have that person to protect you and take care of you. It was devastating financially because there goes your source of income as a woman during that time. But if you were young enough, you could go back to your parents. And Ruth and Orpha would have been young enough during this time. They could have just gone back home to Moab. They didn't have to go with them to Bethlehem. And this is what Orpha does. Both women love Naomi. Orpha decides to go back to Moab. And by doing this, the author tells us that she probably was going back to her gods, her people, her way of life. But Ruth does something different. In verse 16, it says, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And so we see as part of the background of Ruth, yes, she's a Gentile. She's a Moabite woman. Again, not someone we'd expect in the line of Christ. But she shows faithfulness to Naomi. Naomi says, hey, you need to go back. You need to go back to your people. I'm just going to be, I'm just going to sit here and die. My, My life is over. I'm devastated. And Ruth says, I'm not going to do that. Where you go, I'm going to go. Your God is going to become my God. She not only shows faithfulness to Naomi, she shows faithfulness to God. This shows her embracing Naomi's way of life. Not just being ethnically Jewish, but being devoted to Yahweh, God. And what I think is interesting is she shows faithfulness when Naomi doesn't even want to show faithfulness. If you look at the end of Ruth 1, Naomi and Ruth start going to Bethlehem. And some people say, hey, isn't that Naomi? We we know her. She's been part of this community before. And the name Naomi means pleasant. It, It means some kind of sweet fragrance almost. And you know what she says to them? She says, don't call me Naomi or don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. You might say, well, why is she saying that? Why is she trying to change your name? She says, for the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? These are different perspectives on what God is doing. Ruth says, hey, where you go, I'm going to go. Your God's going to be my God. I'm going to be with you until death. Naomi says, call me bitter because God has dealt bitterly with me. And the book of Ruth shows us the providence of God. Her problem was that her husband died. She had no source of income. She had no protection. She's forced in chapter 2 to glean in fields, to take scraps to try to look out for herself. She shows faithfulness, but yet she has no one to provide for her. But yet what we see in the story of Ruth is God's providence through a man named Boaz, who we talked about last week. Through Boaz, God saves Ruth and Naomi. In chapter two, he provides them food 
and protection while Ruth is gleaning for food. In chapter 3, in this kind of weird situation where she's talking to him at night, he says, I'm going to make sure that the people in your family do right by you, that they redeem you, that they take you into their family. And if he doesn't do that, I'm going to do it myself. And then in Ruth chapter 4, we see Boaz do that. He is a righteous man. He takes care of Ruth and Naomi. But the point isn't about Boaz and how good of a guy he is. The point of the story of Ruth is that God provides. God provides for Ruth in a broken situation when she's looking at death, when she's looking at starvation and suffering. She provides for Ruth and Naomi when Naomi says, God has dealt bitterly with me. I was, I was full and I came back empty. We see from the story of Ruth that God provides for the helpless. God provides for people who cannot provide for themselves. And this is part of the Christmas story as well. The story of Christ coming to earth is a story about God providing. When Paul says that we were dead in trespasses and sins, dead means that we can't do anything for ourselves. We can't respond to God. We can't earn our way to salvation. We're thankful that God provides. There's so much that we can worry about in life. Our food, our clothing, our shelter. That's why in Matthew 6, Jesus reminds the people in the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry about what you eat. Don't worry about what you drink. God takes care of sparrows, and sparrows are the, the birds that nobody even thinks of, the little insignificant birds that no one cares about. But he says, if he takes care of them, don't you think he will take care of you? It reminds me of the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. The first verse says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. God provides for our needs, not just physically, but spiritually in salvation. Unlike Ruth, our need was not physical. Maybe there's some things we'd like to have, but our need is spiritual. We needed God's grace. We needed God's redemption. The story of Christmas is a story about God's providence meeting our greatest need. He met our greatest need not by providing food or shelter, but by providing his son as the lamb of God to die for our sins. He gives us this free gift of eternal life. The story of Ruth teaches us a lesson in God's providence. We see a third woman in Jesus' family tree. and Her name is Bathsheba, and she's not actually mentioned by name in Matthew. She's just referenced and her story is in the book of 2 Samuel, and it deals with King David. What's interesting about her is that she's unnamed, which there's a lot of unnamed women in Jesus' family tree. We said Sarah, Rebecca, all these women aren't mentioned by name, yet she's still referred to here. So why does the author refer to Bathsheba, but not mention her by name? Could be because of her sin with David, Maybe they don't want to emphasize what she did, her adultery. But for some reason, she's just referred to here, but not by name. But we meet her in 2 Samuel 11. In 2 Samuel 11, the narrator kind of shifts the story. And he shows us this sin that David commits. And we, we've heard this story many times. 
David is on his roof. He was around in Israel during the time when in verse 1 of chapter 11, it says, In the late spring of the year, the time when kings go to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. It's kind of interesting that the narrator points this out. It, he may be saying that David should have been in the battlefield. He should have been with his soldiers. But for whatever reason, he stays. And it gives him the opportunity to commit this sin. And we're introduced to this character of Bathsheba. as She's bathing on her roof. Now, there's some controversy over this story. Some people think that, and the controversy is about whether or not Bathsheba is the one in sin here with David. Some people think that, yes, she's complicit in this action. She commits adultery. She was trying to seduce David, entice him towards sin. That's why she's bathing on her roof. Other people say, no, that's just something people did during that time. She was this simple girl that David took advantage of, and she shouldn't really be blamed for this sin. And there's these two different perspectives. But the point isn't really about Bathsheba. She's mentioned here, and we're going to talk about her and her life. But this story really shows us the sin of David. And like I said, we know the story. David ends up calling Bathsheba in. He commits adultery with her while she's married to another man named Uriah. He's out at war. She ends up becoming pregnant from David. And David tries to cover it up. He says, you know what? I'm going to bring Uriah back. He's going to live at home. And that'll explain to people why she's pregnant. But Uriah was such a righteous man that he wouldn't come back. He wanted to stay on the battlefield. So David says, well, if I can't get him to come back, I'll just have to kill him on the battlefield. So he sends him to the front lines. Uriah dies in the battlefield. And Bathsheba is taken in by David. He marries her. And they have this child together. And everything seems like it's hidden. In fact, a lot of people would say, as they study this passage, that it took about a year for David to be exposed in his sin. Can you imagine that? A whole year goes by of David in this gross sexual sin, this gross sin of murder, but no one is exposing it. No one is calling him out for it. But we see God does intervene. He sends his prophet Nathan to expose David's sin. In 2 Samuel 12, Nathan comes to David. He tells him this story about two men having these sheep. One man has a lot of sheep, another man has one sheep. And the man with a lot of sheep takes the sheep from the man who only has one. And David becomes outraged and he becomes upset. And he says, the man who stole from the other man deserves to die. And Nathan says, you are the man and, and I love what he says here that the Lord is telling David. He says, Thus the Lord God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel to Judah, and if this were too little, I would add much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now therefore the sword shall not depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your house. 
I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did this secretly, but I will do this before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. As God calls out David for his sin, his sin of adultery, he tells him that his child would eventually die. And this happens to David and Bathsheba. Their child who is already born becomes sick, ill. David prays to God earnestly for their child to survive, but his child dies. This isn't the only consequence we see, though. We looked in these verses, and God promised David the sword will never depart from your house. If you look at the rest of the book of 2 Samuel, things never get better for David. They always get worse. His family gets more and more crazy. They get more and more against each other. His son ends up taking the throne from him. He has to go to the wilderness. By the end of 2 Samuel, we see David as a depressed king sitting on his throne, wasting away his days. It's a sad story. It's a sad life for David. And you might say, well, how does this show us the forgiveness of God? We do see David confess his sin here to God. I think one of the clearest examples of God's forgiveness is found in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 tells us, shows us David's confession before God. In verse 1 he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. David prays earnestly to God for forgiveness, for reconciliation, and God does grant it. In another psalm that David writes, talking about his forgiveness that he has from God, Psalm 32, 1, he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sins is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceits. David and Bathsheba did sin. You can say, well, maybe it was just David. He took advantage of Bathsheba. Either way, their story shows us their sin, but it also reminds us of the forgiveness of God. God loves to forgive sinners. This is part of the Christmas story as well. The Christmas story shows us our reconciliation to God. It, it completes a narrative. It shows us God's answer to the problem of sin started in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sinned and they broke God's law, from that point sin has reigned on the earth. And all of creation has waited for the day when Christ would come and give us the answer to our sins. The Christmas story shows us that God forgives sinners. As we think about this aspect, this lesson of God's forgiveness, we're reminded of our own sin. It's my prayer that everyone here is saved. But are you confessing your sin to God? Maybe you don't know him as Savior. Has there been a point where you've asked him to forgive your sin? If you have sin, even as a Christian in your life, it's hindering your fellowship with God. You need to go to him, confess your sin, and experience the blessing that David talks about the blessing of knowing you have a right relationship with God. 
This is what Christmas is about. God being born as a baby and that baby dying so that we could receive forgiveness of sins. We see a final lesson here described in Jesus' family tree, a final woman that we're introduced to in Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we see her story in the rest of Matthew 1, which we've been looking at in Jesus' family tree, but also in Luke chapter 1 as well. In Luke 1, the angel Gabriel tells Mary that she will give birth to a son. She will conceive. And this seems impossible to Mary because she's a virgin. She was probably very young at this time. Some people have estimated anywhere from 12 years old to 14 to 16 years old. Somewhere in that range, she was not very old when this happened. She was a virgin. She was not married. She had not been with a man. And so this is why she is confused as Gabriel tells her that she's going to give birth to a son. It's kind of interesting as we think about her background. A lot of people want to emphasize Mary and how extraordinary she was. And she does seem to be a woman of great faith. She trusts the Lord. But what I see in the story of Luke 1, as Mary is told that she's going to give birth to Jesus, is how ordinary she is. She's not this extraordinary person. She's not well known by any means. She's not sinless like the Catholic Church would say. She sinned, I'm sure, in her life. She's this ordinary woman that God uses to accomplish his will. In fact, as Gabriel tells her that she's found favor with God, that she's going to bear this son and call his name Jesus. In verse 34, she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? She can't even believe it herself. It shows us God working in this ordinary girl to accomplish the impossible. And what I love about her response is that while she's confused, and if you had an angel come to you and speak to you at all, you would be confused as well, especially if you're in Mary's situation. She does trust the Lord. She says in verse 38 of Luke 1, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary trusts God and God's working in her life. And her problem is that the Jewish law could have had her put to death. She was exposed to be pregnant without a husband, without being married. Joseph could have had her stoned to death by the city officials. We see his story in Matthew chapter 1 after the genealogy of Christ. In verse 18, it talks about the birth of Jesus. Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And it focuses on his reaction to Mary's situation. And in verse 19, it says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. What does that mean? It means that he didn't want her to die. He didn't want her to be stoned to death. So he was going to divorce her. He's going to call off this engagement that they were in. But he's going to do it quietly so that she could still keep her life. And Joseph is spoken to by an angel in a dream. And the angel tells Joseph that God is the one who has caused this to take place. The angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For, what, for which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She shall bear a son, and he shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So as we see Mary's problem here is that she's a virgin, is that she's pregnant while a virgin. We do see that God accomplishes his will by Joseph marrying his by Joseph marrying Mary, by him protecting her. We see the rest of the Christmas story. Mary does give birth to Jesus. She does become the mother of Christ. And again, I'll just emphasize that she's an ordinary person. I don't think that she was sinless. I don't think that she was extraordinary. She does show us faith. She was a very ordinary person that God chooses to work in to accomplish his plan. There's so much about the Christmas story that is unusual and that comes from ordinary circumstances. The Messiah was born in Bethlehem, not really a well-known town, but it was talked about as being the birthplace of Christ. He was born in a manger. His mother was a virgin who was able to conceive. It shows us the mysterious will of God. And I think that's the lesson we can learn from Mary It's that God works in unusual ways. He always accomplishes his will. Mary wasn't special, and if we're honest, we aren't special either, except for the grace that God has shown to us. God is working in us. His will is that we would know him, that we would have a relationship with him, that we would be saved. God always loves to use ordinary people to accomplish his purposes. We see God accomplishing his will in the life of Mary. And all of these things that we've studied this morning from these extraordinary women in Jesus' life should lead us to worship. As we sing, as we think about Jesus during this time, sing songs in church, as we worship him with our families, as you hear Christmas music, even on the radio, we should be reminded of these characteristics of God, that God shows us grace, that God provides for us, that God has forgiven our sins, that God's will was for Christ to be our Savior and for us to know him and have a relationship with him. This is how we can worship Jesus this morning, remembering these truths about God and then thanking him, rejoicing in what God has done. How can we respond as men and women, as Christians, to, the, to, this, to these women of Jesus' family tree? Just got a couple of thoughts. As men, we can first of all respect the godly women in our life. This sermon was focused on the women of Jesus' family tree. We'll go back to looking at some of the men again next week. As men in the room, we can respect godly women in our life. Proverbs 31, 28 and 29 says, Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, he praises her, saying, Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. It's a little bit unusual that this sermon would just focus on the women of Jesus' lineage. It does show us that God has worked through these women to accomplish his will. There's many godly women in my life. There's many godly women in all of our lives that we should show respect to. If you're a woman here, live virtuously. Some of the women we talked about today didn't always behave like we think they should. But we know from Scripture that women should live virtuously. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, 
but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Women should be godly examples for younger women, for other people to follow. Godly women who are examples to others, who teach younger women, who live a life worth praising, they're described in Titus 2, 3 through 5. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. It's God's will that in our church we would have women that are virtuous women who love and serve the Lord to benefit the body of Christ here. So men, may we respect the godly women in our lives. Women live virtuously as good examples for others to follow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these examples from Jesus' life, from his family, from his lineage. These women that you have put in this story, how you provided for them, protected them. We thank you for some of their examples of faithfulness. We thank you for some of the ways that we can see despite their sinfulness, how you still work to bring us Christ. God, may you help us to respond according to your will. Help us this Christmas season to worship you as we should. In Jesus' name, amen.